0: I'm Rick Duderian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory. When Tim Longman traveled to a place called Morambi in 1996, two years after the genocide in Rwanda, he was shocked by what he saw. Tim completed his dissertation research on church-state relations in Rwanda in the year prior to the genocide, and returned to investigate the causes as Director of the Office of Human Rights Watch and the International Federation of Human Rights. He was intimately familiar with Rwandan culture and was appalled by how the Rwandan Patriotic Front, or RPF, which ended the genocide and has ruled Rwanda ever since, decided to commemorate the event.
1: Murambi was a school uh, that um, was being built at the time of the genocide. It had never actually um, been a school yet. Um, But it was this big open space. And so uh, when the genocide happened, one of the things they did was to encourage the Tutsi to gather in some place by promising to protect them. But it was actually in order to get them in a concentrated area so they'd be easier to kill. And so Murambi was uh, a place where um, thousands of people had gathered during the genocide. And it was a place where thousands were were killed. Uh, An estimated 5,000 people were, were killed there. Um, and in the uh, lead up to the um, commemoration, um, they dug up the bodies of all of the people who'd been killed, uh, and um, they were preparing to put them into mass graves. So they laid them out in the school buildings, covered them with lime um, to cover up some of the the uh, deterioration. Um, but it still stank of, of death. Um, and... Uh, at the time of the commemoration, people from all over the world gathered. Um, the leaders of the country, diplomats, and others. Um, this was the, the official uh, commemoration ceremony for for Rwanda in 1996, uh, and they all went to view the bodies that were laid out. Um, and it was, you know, it was gruesome. It was intentionally gruesome, um, and they uh, uh, then after the ceremonies uh, buried the buried the bodies. But this act of putting bodies on display in order to shock people about the genocide um, was something that sort of uh, stuck, stuck with me. Uh, I went back to Morambi uh, about five years later, um, and there were still bodies on display, <laughs> uh, but they actually weren't the same bodies, because the bodies that I had seen at that time had been buried, put into mass graves. Um, but as bodies were found, as mass graves and, and other bodies were found uh, throughout the area, they were brought to Morambi. Uh, And they built little platforms in the schools and and put the bodies on display. And they presented them in ways to sort of teach about the genocide. Um, They had a room that was just bones. They had a room that was children. They had a room that was women's bodies. And they put a stick between the legs of one of the women to show how women had been raped. All of those things were were horrific and true. But I was also disturbed by the degree to which bodies were being used um, for uh, teaching purposes. Um, without much consideration for the, the families of the, the people uh, or, or for the people themselves. There was a, a degree of disrespect and, and, and troubling. I, I talked to one nun whose family had been killed at Murambi, who told me just how horrified she was that bodies were, were put on display. And what this got me to thinking about, and this is kind of a metaphor that I use throughout the book, um, is the degree to which the, the government has used the genocide Um, to try to create a a particular collective memory. Um, And it's one that really serves the interests of the government and is constructed with very little consultation with the survivors of the
0: genocide. In his book, Memory and Justice in Post-Genocide Rwanda, Tim argues that the memory of the genocide has been instrumentalized by the RPF. It's been used to silence critics at home and abroad and to deflect efforts to investigate crimes committed by the RPF. The commemoration at Barambi in 1996 was an early stage in the history of the RPF's manipulation of the past.
1: The process of um, using memory has developed over time in Rwanda. Um, Immediately after the genocide, uh, the the Rwanda Patriotic Front, which was the the largely Tutsi army that had taken control of the country and, and stopped the genocide um, ruled in a, in a coalition. Everyone knew that they were the real powers behind the throne, that Paul Kagame, who was at that time, the vice president and the minister of defense called the shots, but they, they put members of other parties up front in a lot of positions. And there was this attempt to show sort of a, a national unity. Um, over time, the government found that, um, the, 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 evoking the genocide was very effective policy. So what I saw in 1996 was just the beginnings of this where, you know, they talked about the genocide and used that memory, but the, the the process of memorializing the genocide became very uniform uh, and very politicized increasingly over, over, over time. It's now, we're almost approaching 30 years since the the genocide took place. Um, and, And that, at that time, they were already using the genocide to justify um, their, their own form of rule. At the time, the government was pretty violent. Um, they were using a lot of violence against people that they thought weren't fully supporting them. They accused a lot of people of genocide crimes. And by putting the bodies on display, they were sort of justifying the thousands of people that they had in prison, facing no trial at that time. Um, and over time, the regime has become less openly violent, but increasingly authoritarian. Um, so they you know, throw people in prison for criticizing the regime at all. And the control of the narrative about the genocide has been one of the most important things for them, because the idea that the RPF stopped the genocide when the world didn't care, and that, um, that the genocide was so horrific um, that it targeted the Tutsi, uh, all of these are things that are used to justify a, a government that doesn't allow its people to speak or to think independently or to have their own narratives.
0: One of the common tendencies that clouds a more accurate understanding of the Rwandan case is to conflate the genocide in Rwanda with the Holocaust. While you can
1: learn a lot from studying the Holocaust, um, you know I, I do comparative genocide studies, and, and I, I think there's a lot of things that are in common when I've, when I've walked through the Holocaust Memorial Museum in, in Washington. I see a lot of resonances with what I saw in the period leading up to the genocide in Rwanda when I lived there. Um, but, but that said, there are also some very sharp differences. Um, and, um, you know, in, in, in the Rwandan case, you had uh, members of the, the Tutsi group that, that was targeted in the genocide um, who had an army that was literally attacking the country and then took control of the country afterwards um, and actually used a lot of violence of its own in order to establish power. While there were probably five hundred to 600,000 people who were killed in the genocide against the Tutsi. The, the government that took power probably killed 100,000, 200,000 people itself in Rwanda and then in its invasion, uh, Rwandans that they killed in, in Congo, in this invasion of Congo. Um, and, you know, so it, it's a very different situation. But, but that, that framing of the Holocaust shapes how a lot of Westerners in particular approach Rwanda.
0: To fully grasp the particular dynamic in Rwanda, it's important to understand the refugee roots of the RPF, the leaders of the RPF were among the thousands of Tutsis driven into exile in the 1950s and 60s to places like Uganda, Zaire, and Burundi by the Hutu government that seized power in 1959. The formation of these refugee communities was in many respects a backlash to the racialization of Rwanda by European colonial powers the difference
1: between the Tutsi and Hutu existed in pre-colonial times. It wasn't an ethnic division in the way that we think of ethnic divisions and that it was more of a sort of caste division or social division. Tutsi we think meant, meant uh, a leader, um, an elite person and Hutu meant a follower or a commoner. Um, And um, those terms were somewhat flexible. So if you were a Hutu who, managed to get rich and gathered a lot of cattle and you had clients who were dependent upon you, then over time, within a generation or two, you'd be considered a Tutsi. And Tutsi families would want to marry you too. If you were a Tutsi and you lost all of your wealth and you lost your influence and power, uh, other Tutsi families wouldn't want to marry you. Within within a generation, you'd be considered Hutu. So it's, it's not a traditional ethnic division as we think of. But when Europeans came in, um, when the missionaries and colonial administrators came in, they Came in with ideas about race that were very current, that were influenced by the idea of social Darwinism, um, and they applied a lens of race onto the differences in Rwanda. And so they saw the the, the small group, a uh, pygmy group, uh, known as the Twa, uh, as the original inhabitants of Rwanda. And they came up with that whole narrative that they put forward that the Twa were the original inhabitants, and maybe two thousand years ago, Hutu came from from the west from Congo. Uh, and settled. And they were a Bantu people who are sort of a simple farming people who are hard working, but not that smart. Uh, and then the Tutsi came down from the north with their cattle. And because they were intellectually superior, they were able to conquer the the Hutu Bantu people. Um, the idea was that the Tutsi were a Nilotic group, or some argue they were a Hamitic group, that is the descendants of Ham. There were people who even argued that that they might be a lost tribe of Israel that had wandered down, uh, when, when the Europeans came to Rwanda, they found a, a very highly developed political system, um, a system of martial arts and well-developed uh, music and arts and poetry. Uh, and it didn't make sense with their idea of Africa being a, a backward place. Um, and so the theories that, oh, well, maybe Rwanda is so cultured because it's not really African because it's this lost tribe of Israel that's come down. So this history that the Tutsi were a group that was from the outside uh, and came in and conquered Rwanda um, and then exploited the other people because they were superior, that, that spread very widely um, and came to be ad- adopted by many Rwandans. So, um, you know, that, that, that the Tutsi played along. Um, and they helped promote this narrative because it was to their advantage. Um, and so during the colonial period, um, this this misconception about society became a basis for public policy. The Tutsi were able to concentrate political power and wealth. They got education and job opportunities that were not open to Hutu. Hutu had to pay taxes that Tutsi didn't have to pay. And so whether you're Hutu or Tutsi um, became something that really mattered in life. It determined whether you had opportunities or not. Uh, And then it was also fixed because everyone was issued an identity card for bureaucratic purposes, but these identity cards said whether you were Hutu or Tutsi, you, you inherited whatever your father's identity was. Um, And, you know, as a result, um, you know, part of people's lived experience was that Hutu and Tutsi really mattered. And most Rwandans themselves came to believe this narrative uh, about the past. Um, So, yeah, you know, it was uh, historically, you know, not accurate. We, we know from archaeological records, for example, that there were cattle in Rwanda 2,000 years ago. So it's impossible that the Tutsi brought them 500 years ago because they were already there. Um, we we also know, yeah, it's possible that, you know, there people who are today Tutsi are more from people who migrated from the north and the people who were Hutu are, most, are have more from people who migrated from the West. But, but the, the identity difference is not really based on migration. It's based on, on social stratification that happened within Rwanda. Um, but that history, that, that narrative about the past was very powerful. Um, and it was ultimately used to justify the genocide. So it, at the, toward the end of the colonial period, um, the Hutu who had had to pay these extra taxes and were being impoverished as the Tutsi were gaining opportunity and becoming increasingly wealthy, the Hutu rose up. There was a, a rebellion in 1959. Uh, Tutsi chiefs were targeted. A lot of the elite Tutsi fled the country. Uh, the king was overthrown in 1961. And when Rwanda gained independence in 1962, it was with an entirely Hutu government. Um, and um, the, the government today talks about you know that as the first genocide. There were quite a few Tutsi who were killed in the 1960s. Um, there were reprisals against Tutsi. There was some violence. The government at that time really used this narrative that the Hutu were an oppressed people and that the Tutsi were outsiders to justify themselves. The violence stopped for a couple of decades. Government you know, brought it under control. Um, but but uh, in the 1990s, as the government found itself being criticized more, as there was a wave of democracy that was uh, going across Africa, Um, As people were discontent with the economic limitations of Rwanda, the government began to turn back to this rhetoric of uh, difference between Tutsi and Hutu and to divert attention from their own corruption. Government officials talked about the Tutsi as the people who had exploited them and the Tutsi as as outsiders. And even though the Tutsi had been out of power for 30 years, this narrative about the past that said, well, the Tutsi are not really Rwandans. They're a melodic group that came in from the outside and conquered us, and, and we should kick them out because they don't really belong here. Rwanda is a country for the Hutu. That, that was very powerful. And uh, it, it was the, the narrative that ultimately justified the genocide because this idea that the Tutsi didn't belong here and should be sent back down the Nile um, was something that was used to, to justify the killing.
0: The RPF and many of its most prominent leaders, like longtime ruler Paul Kagame, have their roots in the Tutsi refugee community from southern Uganda It was from Uganda in the period leading up to the genocide that the RPF invaded and ultimately toppled the Hutu-led Rwandan government.
1: Yeah, the the experience, particularly in Uganda, um, the uh, Tutsi were mostly put into refugee camps um, and they became sort of political pawns. Um, Idi Amin treated them relatively well. Um. But then when Idi Amin was driven from power uh, and Milton Obote, who had been the previous president, came back into power, uh, he targeted Rwandans. Uh, he saw them as traitors because they'd supported Amin and um, was uh, you know targeting them. Many of them were killed. They lost citizenship rights. Um, and so Rwandans joined a rebel movement against uh, the Obote regime. And Paul Kagame and Frederick Gema, who was the founder of the Rwanda Patriotic Front, joined this uh, military intervention against, against uh, the Ugandan government and helped ultimately to bring uh, Yoweri Museveni to power, who's now the president of Uganda. When Museveni came to power, Paul Kagame became the head of intelligence um, for, for the, the uh, Ugandan regime, right? So they, they were doing very well in Uganda, but they were always seen as outsiders. Um, and it was a political liability for Museveni to have somebody who was born in Rwanda uh in such a high position. Um, and so they were always a bit vulnerable and there also was a sense because they had already driven one government from power and inst- established somebody that they could do the same thing in Rwanda. Um, so yeah, that, that experience of being refugees, but also refugees who had fought back and had been able to you know bring a, a favorable government to power against all odds really made them feel empowered. Um, so you know they they came into Rwanda, um, you know and ultimately, conquered Rwanda. And then they did the same thing in Congo. Um, so, you know, this, this idea of being able to sort of force your way into power um, shapes, <laughs> shapes the regime a lot.
0: Once in power, a key element of the narrative crafted by the RPF was its goal of ending the genocide and saving the Rwandan people. Tim argues that this narrative masked the real power ambitions of the RPF, the ways in which the invasion contributed to the genocide and the suspicions the RPF has towards Tutsis who remained in Rwanda.
1: Beyond that, though, there's also um, a, a rhetoric that emphasizes the degree to which the Rwanda Patriotic Front was purely benign um, and they came into power to bring democracy to Rwanda and to save the Rwandan people. Um, one of the things for those of us who were there at the time we recognize is that the the RPF's actions during the 1990s really helped to fuel the fire of the genocidal ideology uh, as they were attacking civilians and occupying territory. Um, And the way that they carried out the war, even after the genocide started, um, they didn't run the war mostly to end the genocide. They run, ran the war to take power. Um, And, There is this narrative that the the RPF really promotes that, you know, they were there to save their Tutsi brothers and sisters. But in the reality of of post-genocide Rwanda is that there's a lot of tension between the Tutsi who were outside Rwanda and those who were in Rwanda. Um, And those who were in Rwanda tend to have very little power today. Um, Many of them lost most of their families. Most of them lost most of their families. Um, Families are what bring you wealth and security in a society like this. Uh, and so they tend to be quite poor. Very few of them have uh, much political power. They haven't had the same opportunities for education and things that, that the Tutsi who were outside the country had. Uh, and, um, and the, the Tutsi who were outside the country who came back, a lot of them look at the, the Tutsi who survived with suspicion. Uh, there's a idea, well, if, if you survived, what did you do? Why didn't you fight back? You know, if you were a man, Um, Did you pretend to be Hutu in order to survive? If you were a woman, did you sell your body in order to
0: uh, be saved? The RPF regarded Hutus who remained in Rwanda during the genocide with an even greater degree of distrust and suspicion.
1: Because the RPF and its supporters were not in Rwanda at the time of the genocide, they they don't really quite know how the genocide took place. Um, There was this strong anti-Tutsi rhetoric that was out there. And there's an assumption that the Hutu population entirely backed this rhetoric, that they um, uh, were convinced by it and that they all hated Tutsi and that therefore they went out and killed because of their hatred for the Tutsi. Um, and it's that, that's just problematic in a variety of ways. The research that I've done and the research that some other people have done has found that there were a comp- complex set of reasons for why people engaged in the genocide. Um, it was official government policy. People were told to go out and kill. And to not participate was to go against the government, was to make yourself vulnerable. A lot of people acted out of fear. They were um, being fed information about the RPF uh, coming in and killing all Hutu. Uh, but they also were afraid that if they didn't participate, they their families could be targeted. Um, there is um, social pressure that was really important. There were social networks that pulled people uh, into to participation because their friends were doing it. A lot of the killers were were young people, um, and they were sort of empowered because they're in a society where young people are supposed to know their place and remain quiet, and here was a chance for them to go out and be powerful. There were economic motives because they could take Tutsi land and Tutsi, Tutsi cattle and other possessions. So there were a, com- a complexity of motives that, that um, got people involved. And beyond that, there were a lot of Hutu who didn't support the genocide. Um, some for religious reasons, um, some for other reasons. There were uh, a lot, of, a high rate of intermarriage. Uh, a lot of Hutu had Tutsi in their families. As a matter of fact, probably most Hutu did. Uh, and even some of the Hutu who killed, uh, in many cases, they, they may have killed, but they also protected other Tutsi. So they might have protected their wife or their in-laws or others in their home, and they went out to participate in the killing in order to... to, to take suspicion off of them so that their house wouldn't be searched, so they could hide the people that they, that they cared for. So, um, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's a complex, it was a complex situation.
0: Convinced that a false historical narrative fueled widespread ethnic hatreds and caused the genocide, the RPF decided to craft a new narrative that diminished the importance of ethnic identities. But this narrative tended to ignore legitimate Hutu historical grievances, and Tutsi collaboration in the colonial system. It also distorted the understanding of the Hutu rise to power in 1959 as the beginning of an inexorable march toward the genocide.
1: Yeah, so the the problem is in critiquing the narrative that was there before, which is accurate. um, They developed their own narrative that's uh, perhaps less damaging, um, but also is not particularly historically accurate. Right, so they've argued that Hutu and Tutsi had no meaning prior to colonialism, which we know isn't true, um, and that they were divisions that were merely created by the Europeans, um, and that um, that uh, the um, there was never Hutu or Tutsi conflict before. Um, so there's a lot of sort of blaming all the problems on colonialism and Europeans, which which is not not fully inaccurate, um, but it's also ignoring the fact that there were these social divisions um, and that the Tutsi played a role in. Re, you know, helping to enforce them uh, in buying into this. Um, there's, you know, it's difficult to, for them now to deal with sort of the the, the complicity of some of their Tutsi predecessors. Uh, and, and beyond that, they also sort of talk about the, the the king as a very benign ruler who favored everyone, and you know, so they ignore the the, the degree to which the, the Hutu actually had some reason to complain. Um, and then they talk about. Um, the, the, uh, Hutu, uh, uprising in 1959, which the Hutu have talked about as a revolution. They talk about it as the first instance of genocide when, you know, the people at the time really saw it as kind of rising up against the people who were powerful. And they interpreted that in, in, um, in terms, uh, that were, were ethnic. And so it was problematic, um, but but it, it's, it didn't have the kind of ideology that we think of as a genocidal ideology. They weren't certainly trying to wipe out all Tutsi. They were just trying to take power uh, take control.
0: While trying to diminish the historical importance of ethnic identities, the RPF has made the genocide the focal point of a new national narrative.
1: It's the focal point of Rwandan history today, right? So uh, it's as though all of Rwandan history was building toward the genocide and that everything that's happened since is justified by the genocide.
0: The official historical narrative repeated at commemorative ceremonies taught in schools and found at museums devoted to the genocide offers a linear story of the national past. It
1: tells a single narrative, um, and that single narrative is one that focuses on uh, the sins of colonialism, which are real, <laughs> um, but, but that distorts them just in certain ways, and um, and that focuses on all of Rwanda history building towards the genocide, uh, and then tells the story of their heroic RPF uh, and really makes the argument for why the RPF should be in power.
0: Telling this linear story requires a flattening of the true complexity of Rwanda's history.
1: Yeah, the reality is, um, you know, there are a variety of divisions that exist in the society. For example, um, during the, the government right before the genocide, um, the division between the North Hutu from the North and Hutu from the South was really important. When I was in Rwanda in 1992 and 1993, uh, I spent time in both the North and South and the people in the South really complained a lot about being left out of the regime. And most of them were critics of the the government that was in power, even though it was a Hutu government. Um, And um, the, you know, there just were a lot more complexities than, than are recognized. Um, The first Republic, which was in power from, uh, from 1962 to 1973, um, started out really using the rhetoric of Hutu, Hutu power quite a bit. You know, they justified their rule. They said they were majority rule because the majority was the Hutu. Um, and you had this period of ethnic violence. And then in, 1970, in 1973, there was another wave of, of ethnic violence that destabilized the country. And when the head of the military took power, uh, Juvenal Habyarimana. Uh, this Hutu from the north, um, he actually put a stop to that. He set a system of of ethnic quotas, which was problematic, but also was done to appease the the Hutu population, to sort of say, look, the the Tutsi aren't going to dominate everything. They have a 10% quota. They're 10% of the population. They can have 10% of school spots. They can have 10% of jobs. Um, And then really said, and now we're going to focus on development. And for a good 15 years, there was very little discussion of ethnicity. Um, And there was a real focus on getting international development dollars. And Rwanda was a development darling. It's a small country. It's easy to work in. It's very well organized. And so a lot of international money poured into Rwanda to develop tea plantations and pyrethrum plantations and to um, help build roads and build um, uh, dams for for hydroelectric power. Uh, Rwanda was a country that everybody looked at as, you know, it's, it's a good place for development. Uh, it was only after the government had been in office for, you know, almost two decades and people were getting very tired of its rule and beginning very critical. Um, and as, as talk of democracy was spreading across the continent, um, that the regime turned back to, uh, ethnic rhetoric and started talking. So, you know, history, history rarely moves in straight lines. It tends to move in, you know, up and down and in complicated ways and, and layers itself. Um, so, you know, what's interesting for me too, is, uh, there's Rwanda now is a development darling. Um, and it was a place where people saw it was, you know, you could invest money and there was low corruption. Um, you no, know, that was true before the Genesis as well. Um, and so there's, there's sort of echoes of the past that, that are frightening in some
0: ways. Forgetting, Tim reminds us, is just as important as remembering in the construction of a national narrative.
1: Yeah, we, in, in the literature on memory, we talk a lot about sites of memory, um, these memorials and museums and other things that are used to create memory. Um, but one of the things I write about is sites of forgetting because there are places where, you know, the, the, the first president, um, Gregor Kaibanda, um, was one who used a lot of anti-Tutsi rhetoric to build his own power. And he claimed to be standing up for the Hutu. Um, his, his political party was Parma Hutu, this party for the Hutu. Um, and, um, there was a lot of ethnic violence against Tutsi that took place under his watch. Um, well, uh, after, uh, uh, he was deposed in 1973 and he lived out the last of his years in this house um, in the middle of the country, just off the highway, which if you drive on the main road from Butari to to Kigali, the capital, you see this house. Um, and after the RPF took power, they just let this house fall apart. It's abandoned. And you just see it going into dereliction. And I really saw it as sort of a symbol of the, this is we're supposed to forget the memory of this president. We don't honor him as a former president because he was a racist against the, the, the Tutsi. And so, you know, um, we, we, we allow that to fall apart as, as a symbol. Kebeho was a church where there was a massacre during the genocide. Uh, but after the genocide, uh, a lot of Hutu Gathered, It was an area that was controlled by the French briefly, um, and they set up a, a camp for the internally displaced for people who fled the RPF. Um, and uh, in March of uh, 1995, just before I went back to Rwanda, uh, the uh, the Rwanda Patri- Patriotic Front closed all of these IDP camps, and they did so forcefully. Um, they went into the camp at Cabejo and opened fire and killed a couple of thousand people. They're actually people from the United Nations and from Human Rights Watch who were present at the time and saw what happened. Um, and so, you know, it's very well documented, this Cabejo massacre. There were a few other massacres that, that took place and a lot of, a lot of um, summary executions and other killings that the RPF took, uh, in its, particularly in its first year in power um, of a lot of Hutu who were killed. But this Cabejo massacre was a major massacre. When you go to Cabejo now, there is not a single commemoration of the thousands of people who were killed by the RPF. There are no memorials, there are no mass graves, um, but there are several memorials to the genocide. Um, And so on the one hand, you have this site of memory for the genocide, but the memory of Hutu who were killed by the RPF is completely erased. Um, You can't talk about it. And if you talk about it, you can get in trouble. You can be sent to prison for promoting ethnic division. Um, So there are a lot of things that have to be forgotten. Uh, In 1996... Uh, When the genocide happened, um, the RPF took control of the country and a lot of Hutu fled. Their government officials still had a lot of sway over them and they said the RPF was going to kill everyone. And so uh, a million people fled into Tanzania and another million fled into Congo. Um, and in Congo, they stayed in refugee camps that were right on the border, uh, and people who carried out genocide mixed with legitimate refugees. Um, there were arms in the camps. It was, it was very poorly run by by UNHCR and by the Congolese government, um, and so there was a security threat that the regime perceived. Well, in 1996, uh, the RPF and the Ugandan army um, created a rebel group, and they together with that rebel group, invaded Congo. And the RPF actually bombed the refugee camps. And they told all of the uh, all of the, the refugees that they had to go back into Rwanda. And if they didn't go into Rwanda, they were going to be fair game. Uh, they then hunted down uh, people in the jungles of Congo. One guy that I knew uh, who spent two years fleeing across the jungles of Congo being pursued by Rwandan troops um, ended up going back to Rwanda and became a, a judge in the gachacha courts, actually. He he was fairly complimentary of the RPF because he said he'd been told that, that they were going to kill everybody and they hadn't and, um, things. But but at any rate, um, the RPF killed a lot of people in Congo. And one of the things that people told me when I interviewed this, uh, them is when we, mem- you know, when we have these memorials, we talk about the victims of the genocide, but we're not allowed to talk about our dead. Uh, we're not allowed to rem- remember our family members who were killed in the refugee camps or who were hunted down in the jungles or even who died of cholera in the refugee camps. Um, and so there is this enforcement of extensive memory of the genocide, which, which should be memorialized. I mean, it was a horrible event, but there's also deafening silence about other other people who were killed, and particularly Hutu who died.
0: Beyond the politics of remembering and forgetting, the RPF shapes the memory of the genocide through the language it authorizes or criminalizes.
1: Yeah, the, the way that we talk about the genocide over time, um, you know, has, has evolved, and um, and, and it's sort of very significant. The um, the There was no word for genocide in the Rwandan language. I mean, the word genocide was, of course, invented by, by Raphael Lemkin um, during the Second World War. Um, There's no word for that in Kenya, Rwanda. And so in the immediate aftermath of the genocide, um, there was a, a, a talk. So you had Itsembatsemba, uh, which is a massacre, Um and itsemba Boko buoko is the word for a clan or for an ethnic group. Um, so they talked about itsemba and itsemba Boko. So uh, when I was there in 1995 and 1996 for Human Rights Watch, you would often hear about itsemba tsemba and itsemba buoko um, to talk about the, the massacres and the genocide, right? So at that time, the, there was some acknowledgement that the RPF had killed people as well, um, but that, the, you know, the genocide as so, well. um there was then a move to say, well, actually it's not a ethnic killing. Isn't the same thing as genocide. So they brought in the word and genocide. And, um, and uh, so they adopted the word genocide just into Kenya, Rwanda. So genocide became the term for a while. Uh, and then there was an emphasis on the genocide of the, of the Tutsi. Um, so genocide, um, Tutsi. And um <laughs> Because I wanted to emphasize, well, the, the genocide, this was a specific genocide. And now, uh, then it said, well, the genocide of the Tutsi could imply that it was the Tutsi who committed genocide. So we're going to call it the genocide against the Tutsi. right? And so now the official language that this has been approved by law in Rwanda, they've got the United Nations to approve it. The official term is the genocide against the Tutsi. Um, and if you try to call it anything else, if you talk about the Rwandan genocide, uh, you'll, you'll get attacked. Because that's not the official language. Um, you know, they'll say, well, you don't call the Holocaust something else. And, I mean, actually, we do. We talk about the Holocaust as a genocide against the Jews. We talk about it as Shoah. Um, but, but in Rwanda, there's a very strict argument for the genocide against the Tutsi is the language that, that you know, has to be put forward. Um, and, and, you know, the, the problem with that, of course, is it was not the survivors who argued this. And this was, again, government policy. And it's you know Tutsi from outside Rwanda who've really insisted on this, and they're the ones who police the language of people around the world. Um, and uh, you know, and I understand why they do it. You know, it's not it's not a hill I'm willing to die on. So you know, I'll use that terminology of genocide against the Tutsi because that's that's what people want. But but it's also highly politicized, and it's an example of the degree to which um, the degree to which the Uh, the government's um, use of memory really gets politicized. One of the ironies is, of course, that the Rwandan government has banned uh, ethnic identification Uh, because the division between the Hutu and the Tutsi was the source of the genocide. um, They have banned people from identifying themselves as Hutu, Tutsi, or Twa. Um, And so at the very time when people can't talk about their ethnic identities, the, the memory of the genocide constantly reinforces the idea of a tutsi identity right because what makes it a genocide is the targeting of the tutsi which is true i mean that's the definition of genocide is that but but so on the one hand um the tutsi identity gets reinforced and reinforced and is used to sort of justify the rpf in power and the implication of course is well we all know that the rpf is mostly tutsi and and that but you can't really say that um and yet, at the same time, actually identifying people um, as being part of an ethnic group is, is something that could wind you in prison, right? If you're asked what your ethnicity is in Rwanda today, you're supposed to say, I'm just Rwandan.
0: While considerable resources have been devoted to identifying and punishing the perpetrators of the genocide, Tim argues that transitional justice in Rwanda has been fundamentally flawed.
1: With the Nuremberg trials and the Tokyo trials, the initial idea was just these are people who need to be punished. They did terrible things, and justice demands that they suffer. Um, And so you had leaders who were put on trial, found guilty, and hung. Uh, Increasingly, though, the idea is that transitional justice doesn't just give justice – but it helps to encourage a conversation about what happened in the past. So that sort of comes out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Uh, And that it uh, gives uh, victims and survivors a a sense of closure so that they can move on. Um, It helps to build rule of law in societies. These are all the promises that are made. Uh, And in the Rwandan case, you started with the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which um, focused on mostly people who were outside Rwanda and, most of the main leaders of the genocide had fled, so it focused on the the uh, main government leaders and uh, military officials and some people on radio who would encouraged the violence and a few religious leaders and things of that sort. Uh, but within Rwanda, you had most of the sort of foot soldiers, the people who, who had actually done most of the killing themselves on the orders of others. And Rwanda had something like 140,000 people in prison, Um by five or six years after the, the genocide. And so there was an idea, well, we need to do something <clears throat> to get them out of prison. And so initially there was this idea to uh, create some kind of local court. And they looked at Rwanda had a uh, a system of dispute resolution historically called gachacha. Gachacha was where the elders would gather on the, the grass. Gachacha means small grass. Uh, people would gather on a lawn in a community. Uh, and if, let's say, someone's cattle was stolen, um, they would sit down and listen to the people who had the complaint, listen to the people who were accused, and come up with some resolution that would help bring the community back together uh, and uh, rebuild the, the society. Um, it was generally for fairly minor crimes, for conflicts within families, sometimes conflicts between families. Uh, but the government decided they could use gachacha, uh as a means to speed up prosecution of people. That every community could create its own gachacha court, uh, and then those courts could quickly deal with the genocide crimes within their community, uh, and then people could either go to jail or get out of jail, and communities could move on and they could leave it behind them. Fairly quickly, leaders started to um, bring a lot of the ideas of transitional justice to gachacha. So they talked about it. Well, because it's in the community and it'll have public hearings, it'll be like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, it'll allow an airing of what happened. It will help to reconcile our communities. It will allow the survivors to move on and to feel closure. So one of the things I argue in my book is that in the Gachacha trials, you know, by putting 1.1 million Hutu on trial, now let's just look at those numbers, right? So if you had a country that was 7.7 million, let's say that 700,000 people were killed. So that leaves you 7 million, half of the population was too young to really be held accountable. So that's three point five million. Half of that population was uh, women, and women were involved, but they generally weren't charged in the the genocide trials. So about five percent were for women, you know. So that leaves you, you know, with one point one uh, Hutu men who could be charged, um, and one point one million people were um, were uh, actually charged. And so that's a huge portion. The majority of Hutu men um, from that that period, you know, were put on trial for genocide charges. And a large portion of them were found guilty, mostly of property crimes, but still that marks you as a genocide. So the effect of the Gachacha trials was to basically paint all Hutu as genocide people who participated in the genocide. Um, so Tutsi became synonymous with victim. Even though the RPF was in power and committed some of its own tr- atrocities, and Hutu became synonymous with perpetrator. One of the arguments about transitional justice is that it helps to sort between those who are guilty and those who are not, so that not all Germans are seen as being Nazis, uh, but just those who participated in the atrocities. Um, that not all Serbs uh, necessarily participated in violence against uh, against the Bosnians and Croatians, for example. But in the Rwandan case, the trials actually helped to reinforce the idea that all Hutu were, by their very nature, Genesider. Um And the government very effectively used the trials in order to make this idea that, that they, even though they were an army that was attacking the country, that they were themselves victims of the genocide.
0: Even the International Tribunal, created in response to the genocide, was successfully subverted by the RPF.
1: You had the creation of the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia in late 1993. Then the, the Rwanda genocide takes place, um, and um, Rwanda happened to have a seat on the Security Council at that time. Um, and the, once they were re- replaced, um, you know, with the, the new government, the RPF government, they called for um, there to be a, a new criminal tribunal for for Rwanda. Um, and so, uh, in the end, the the uh, security council decided um, not to create a separate court, but to create a separate chamber um, for Rwanda uh, for this court that would be, be based in the Hague. They would create a, a Rwandan chamber in Arusha, Tanzania. Um, and Rwanda ended up objecting to it for a variety of reasons. One was that it would not allow the death penalty because international courts never do. Um, second was that they actually wanted the court to be in Rwanda, but the, the United nations felt that it needed to be somewhere else so that it could be fully neutral. So it couldn't be pol- politically manipulated. Um, and, um, they also wanted Rwanda to have uh, primacy. That is if Rwanda wanted to put someone on trial, they should be allowed to. And so all of those things were rejected by the UN. And so, uh, the, when the court was created, Rwanda, even though they had asked for the creation of it, they were the one vote against it. Um, the court itself, though, ended up being something that Rwanda used very effectively for its purposes. I mean, it, it was an important court, right? It, it ended up trying a number of major figures. Um, it very effectively helped to prevent uh, a the people who carried out the genocide from creating an alternative government outside of Rwanda. Um, they became fugitives. They were hunted down, some of them were put on trial and, and, and ultimately imprisoned. Um, there was... Uh, you know, it was not a huge number of people who were, who were tried, but in the end, you know, a, a good number of pu- public officials were tried in an international court, um, a- and imprisoned. Um, wasn't, they weren't always the best trials. Um, some people were acquitted because of the shoddiness of the evidence and other things, but, but it was an important step to really show that the international community condemned the, the horrors of the genocide and wanted to hold people accountable. But, when the, when the court was created, it was created to deal with, um, you know, genocide and crimes against humanity uh, during that, that period of 1994. Um, and it was envisioned that if the RPF had committed atrocities, um, that they could be tried there as well. But the RPF very effectively uh, used its influence to prevent that from happening. Um, and so there were never any cases against the RPF that were brought, uh, even though the RPF... Um, you know, killed tens of thousands of people as it came into Rwanda. Even though there were these major massacres, they, they were never put on trial for that. Not a single person was. Um, the, one of the uh, prosecutors tried to start investigating the RPF, uh, and the RPF turned to its American and other allies and and got her pushed out, um, so that uh, you know she was replaced by somebody who was very uh, 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 pro RPF and was not going to bring any charges against them. Um, so what we ended up with was. You know, very effective justice for the genocide and no justice at all for other crimes that were committed um, so you know it, it's it's partial justice at best
0: Tim argues that we need to recognize that there are limits to what transitional justice can do and what transitional justice often fails to take into account is what victimized populations really want one of
1: the one of the problems with transitional justice that you see in Rwanda, but I think is more general, is that it's always a top-down initiative. Um, it's what the international community and what national elites think the country needs. Um, and transitional justice is r- rarely created through an organic process that goes to the people and finds out what they want. Um, in talking to survivors, one of the things that was clear in Rwanda was the thing that's most important to survivors was to rebuild their lives. Um, they, they wanted people held accountable, but, what really what they wanted was reparations. Um, that was the most important thing. And reparations is actually in a lot of cases that when you talk to survivors, uh, victims of, of violence, you know, reparations is, is key. Um, but reparations is often a, a very minor part of transitional justice because it's expensive and, um, and well, that's just not what we focus on. We focus on justice and accountability, um, And so there is this problem of transitional justice being imposed from above. Um, And it's, it's what's good for people, but the people themselves may want something else. Um, And uh, one of the lessons I have from Rwanda is, you know, I I, I think we should listen to people more um, what they think transitional justice should be, what they think should happen after genocide, how, how, how after genocide or authoritarian rule, how how do people think society should be rebuilt? What is it they really need? And, And beyond that, we also should be pretty modest in what we think transitional justice can accomplish. I mean, the reality is if, if you're a survivor of the genocide and you lost your family, nothing is going to bring that family back, right? They're, they're gone. And, and so the best we can do is have some accountability and maybe help rebuild your life some, but that loss is always going to be there. And, and so there is a, a sadness that's always going to be present. We can't just wipe that away. Um, what we can do is try to raise people up and take seriously their experiences. But but there are, in the end, real limits to what transitional justice can accomplish because it, it can't bring back the dead. It can't fully heal a society because there are people who are gone who will never never be back.
0: The RPF has channeled considerable energy and resources into economic development. But Tim finds that the same pervasive distrust to the population colors the RPF's approach to economic development and the outcome of its policies.
1: You know, there's there's a lot to be praised for the current government, right? They they manage the economy well. Um, they really have built up Kigali to be a beautiful city from being kind of a small backwater. Um, you know, they've they've brought in a lot of development money and they've used it, they've used it well. Um, but all of their initiatives are very top-down um, because they don't really trust their population and are kind of afraid of them. There's a sense that they know best. And so, you know, agricultural initiatives are not, are not created through grassroots initiatives and grassroots connections to the farmers. They're decisions that are made in the capital, and they're, they're passed down to the people below and the farmers have to obey. And if you don't obey, you can get in trouble. You can lose your land, you can be thrown in prison. Um, and so there, there is this degree to which the, the population just has to go along. Um, and, You know that that's a situation that that's problematic. It's 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 authoritarian. So even if you have a good vision, if you if your vision is one that is imposed on people, you're going to get resistance, and it's going to be less effective than something that's organic that that really works with the population and builds from them. Um, And so you know there is this kind of mix. You know the the government is efficient and effective, and and Development workers who come in from the outside are really impressed with how visionary they are and how committed they are. And and I think they're quite sincere, but they also are terrible at consulting their population um, and really impose things on them. And one of the things that a lot of Rwandans sort of feel is that this is an economy that is benefiting a limited few um, and that there's great inequality. And even if there has been some improvement in the lives of the poorest of the poor, um, there's a sense that the, riches, the rich have gotten much richer. And so the division between the rich and the poor um, has, has become more intense. At least that's the impression that, that many Rwandans have. And so there's a lot of discontent. So people go along because there are consequences if you don't, but there's also a lot of grumbling and a lot of unhappiness.
0: Driven by sentiments of distrust, Tim believes that the RPF's economic policies have deepened ethnic divisions within Rwanda.
1: Well I, I think that I think there are ways in which the government's afraid of its own people again because they weren't in Rwanda when the genocide happened and they have this idea that all of the Hutu just hated the Tutsi there's a real mistrust of the Hutu population even though the majority of Hutu did not support the genocide the majority of Hutu did not participate in the genocide um, there there is this fear that you know this and, and those who did participate didn't necessarily participate out of hatred or because of the ideology but but for a variety of complex reasons um, and, and so the government, you know um looks at its people and and really thinks well maybe if they can hold power uh and that they can control the conversation for a generation or two then maybe the country can be transformed uh and can move for, can move forward there's a real emphasis on economic development the idea is you know if we become prosperous enough no one's going to care about um things like ethnic identity and free speech and things of that sort sort of they use singapore as a model um, the uh, problem is that ethnicity is still there. People still know what their ethnic identities are. And because you can't talk about it, um, what a lot of Hutu secretly in their homes will say is, you know, the Tutsi control everything. They control the government. They control civil society. They control businesses. That They're getting rich. And the Hutu are staying poor. Um, and because we can't talk about ethnicity, we don't know how true that is. Because we can't talk about ethnicity, we can't. Um, challenge that and say no, this isn't true, and, and show them that in fact there's plenty of Hutu who are doing well, or or to show that um, uh, that education is much more accessible than it used to be, or that people have access to, to healthcare in ways that they don't. And so this sort of fear of the population and the degree to which they've controlled the rhetoric allows a lot of discontent to sort of fester underneath. I don't think Rwanda is any anywhere close to to having violence again because I think it's very tightly controlled. But there is a great degree of, of discontent and unhappiness. Um, people that I remain in touch with in Rwanda uh, are, are unhappy. Um, I had a good friend who died a, a year ago uh, who was a survivor of the genocide who just never fit in in post-genocide Rwanda. Um, several times he got pushed out of his jobs and replaced by uh, Tutsi who had come back from, from Uganda. Um, and he just really felt like they didn't understand the culture and that – that they um, were not, um, you know, that that they were really just interested mostly in ruling and having power. Um, You know, this is a survivor who, who, you know, just felt like his story was never really heard. Um, And ultimately when he died, it was just, he didn't have access to to the healthcare that he needed. And he kind of was defeated and, um, you know, passed away from an illness. Um, And and a lot of other people that I know in Rolanda are, are, you know, they, they, they appreciate the economic development. They appreciate the peace that the country is in now, but they also are afraid. Um, they feel like they can't speak, uh, and they feel like there's a small elite that's really doing very, very well, and the rest of the country is just working for that elite.
0: Tim Longman is Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Boston University. He is author of Memory and Justice in Post-Genocide Rwanda. Tim, thank you for taking time to join this episode of Realms of Memory.
1: Thanks so much for speaking with me.
0: Once again, I'd like to thank Tim Longman for generously sharing his time and thoughts with me. You can find more about this episode on the podcast website at realmsofmemory.com Next month, we turn to the story of the Asaba Massacre during the Civil War in Nigeria. We'll talk with University of South Florida Professor Emerita Liz Bird about how the failure to address the reality of this massacre may have prolonged a conflict that cost as many as 2 million lives. We'll discuss how the memory of this massacre persists and continues to shape the lives of the people of Asaba. If you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dedarian. Thanks again for listening to Realms of Memory.